Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder that is joining us. You know, we have a founder that has done it multiple times. You know, now he is on his second company. The first one uh, basically got acquired by Cisco for $1.2 billion. The second one, he is now taking it public. Uh, over 2,000 employees. I mean, talking about impact, today we're going to be talking about how he met his co-founder and what a pivotal moment that was for him, as well as going through an acquisition, you know, of that size, especially being your first company. And then also thinking about scale, you know, when you build, you know, a company of the caliber and size and, and scope, like the one that he's building now, as well as now operating a public company, a little bit different than really being on the private side of things. So again, brace yourself for a very inspiring episode today. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sanjit Biswas. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Alejandro. So originally born in Canada, technically, because you grew up, you know, in Texas and also a blend with California. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life is good. So yeah, I was born in Canada. My parents were uh, academics, so they immigrated from India. Um, my dad ended up becoming a professor at uh, a college in Texas, so we moved there. And that's really where I grew up, elementary school, middle school. Uh, great years, um, made a lot of friends. So it was a good good place to grow up. And then um, we eventually ended up moving as a family to California, which is where I went to high school, uh, which is awesome if you're in tech. Uh, we became part of Silicon Valley, and there's just technology everywhere. This is back in the 1990s, so the birth of the Internet and World Wide Web, if you remember all that. And I uh, stayed here to go to college, and then uh, I was an undergrad at Stanford, and then was fortunate enough to go to MIT for grad school, which is where my entrepreneurial journey kind of started uh, when I met my co-founder. So one thing that is really amazing here is the resilience that also builds up when you switch locations at such a young age. You know, is new friends, is dealing with the unknown, is uncertainty. I'm sure that has shaped who you are today, Sanjit. How would you say that it did so? Yeah, you know, uh, as you can imagine, all of these uh, different places have very different cultures. And when you're new, you're just trying to figure it out, especially in a, at an age like that transition to high school. Everyone's kind of in that like awkward phase. Uh, if you're the new kid, you don't have the friends, you don't have the, the circles of, of, of communities that people that have grown up in the area have. So definitely makes you resilient to your point. Um, I ended up uh, actually, when we moved from Texas to California, uh, I started high school, but I actually started high school at a very young age. So I was about 12 years old in ninth grade, which is two years uh, younger than everyone else. And at that point, you're you're quite physically different, right? Like you're literally shorter than everybody else and, and much smaller. Uh, so that uh, was an interesting episode of my life, which is that we moved from Texas to California, a different area. Um, and the way I made friends was actually through technology. So I found ways to show them how to use the internet, uh, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and uh, it was actually a really fun way to meet a lot of people very quickly. So anyway, I kind of turned that disadvantage into an advantage, I think. So that problem-solving drive that you have, where is that coming from? You know, I think if you are an engineer by nature, you love puzzles and you love problems. And then you like trying to find clever solutions to them. So that's just something that I think has been 
part of my DNA. My dad literally is an engineer by background. So I think probably somewhere early, I got into that, the sort of fun of it. And then, um, you know, they're just bigger and bigger problems to solve, whether they're technical, you know, on the engineering side or business problems. So what, what happened there on the blend that you use between Stanford and MIT? Because it sounds like that was the perfect combination, you know, for you to eventually meet your co-founder, John. So uh, how did that happen of, 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 of Stanford and then MIT? Yeah, so uh, at Stanford, I studied engineering, both computer science and electrical engineering, and uh, really got into computer networks. So this is, again, kind of uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. New technologies like Wi-Fi were just kind of happening at that point. And uh, that's what kind of caught my attention and caught my focus. So was doing some research as an undergrad, really got into it. This was also around the time of the dot-com bust, so not a lot of jobs out there. So it seemed like a good idea to apply to grad school and really focus on research because it's it's a super fun thing to be able to do is spend a couple of years on a problem. Um, so any, anyway, um, ended up applying to grad school, was really lucky and fortunate, got into MIT and uh, decided to move to the East Coast and study computer networking. So that was kind of the plan. Uh, my co-founder, John Bickett, he also was on the same timeline. And uh, we ended up meeting on the first day of grad school when we were, uh, you know, put in our advisor's new lab. Now, what a, what a transition of events here, a, a shifting gears, because you wanted to be a professor, but eventually it didn't pan out that way. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we got, I would say, fairly close because we were grad students for four or five years. We wrote a lot of research papers and the work we were doing was really interesting. So for a little context, uh, I mentioned Wi-Fi was a new technology. We thought it could be a new way of providing people with Internet access at very large scale. So think a Wi-Fi network that covers an entire city. And that's what we built. Our research project was called RoofNet. We put antennas on roofs, very creative name. Um, but we were able to basically broadcast these, these signals using a mesh network. That made for really interesting academic research. How do you route the traffic? How do you manage so many users? But also a lot of practical real-world impact because at the time, internet was very expensive. Broadband was expensive. And we were able to basically give it away for free to other grad students. So anyway, that was kind of how we got into research. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, very productive. And uh, we were all but what's called all but dissertation. So just basically hadn't written the big project at the end. Uh, but right around that time, which is in 2006, decided, hey, we can take this technology and stick it in a box and thought we'd hit pause on our PhDs and, and give that a shot. And that's what led to our first startup company, which is called uh, Meraki. So tell us all about Meraki. How was the, uh, you know, the sequence of events that needed to happen for Meraki to come to life and and what was that ideation all the way to, to launch? So with Meraki, um, you know, the idea was really, can we take this technology, put it in a box, make it possible for other people to put up big Wi-Fi networks? We originally didn't think of it as a startup. We thought of it a little more as a project, which is, hey, this would just be cool if we could see this research have impact. And uh, the reason it became a company is in order to have devices to put in these boxes, we had to it's hardware, right? So we had to be able to manufacture them, pay for them, and then essentially transact with, with customers. MIT was not set up to do that. MIT is a research institution. You can't you know, sell products as a university. So we created the company to help with that. We didn't have any venture capital, right? We're sitting in Boston. We didn't have a big network of, of, of people. Um, and this is before like Y Combinator, for example. So it's not that we could have applied to a program to get uh, funding. And because we were graduate students, we didn't have any extra money of our own. So it actually was a really uh, important life lesson of, like like you said, resilience. Like, how do you make it happen? So we found our way to some early customers. 
who were willing to prepay, essentially give us payment so we could get the hardware manufactured. And then we got the devices out there and that's what got the flywheel started. So the very beginning was essentially a bootstrapping process for us. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Meraki? How were you guys making money there? Yeah, so in the very early days, it was simply, hey, check out these devices. You can plug them in. It's basically Wi-Fi routers that can form a mesh and so on. And we charged a couple hundred dollars for them. What became pretty clear, though, was the value was in the software. The hardware was was sort of the how you made it happen, but the software was what made it very different. The routing software, the management, being able to see all your users, create guest access, all that. So over time, we essentially added the license model on top of it where we could run a cloud service and it became cloud networking, essentially cloud managed networks. And that applied to Wi-Fi, to Ethernet, to routing, to security. We could use it for all kinds of different networking. And that became a really exciting business. Uh, it was good gross margin. It was a recurring revenue or subscription business. Again, this is 15 years ago, so very different time in the market. And uh, something that was truly sustainable. So that uh, is what eventually ended up making it so appealing for Cisco to acquire. And what would you say, you know, made it so challenging on that combination of uh, hardware and software? You know, what, what was the challenge? Because, I mean, typically you hear this a lot on companies like this, not only on the execution, but even the way that, you know, is perceived by potential investors, no? Uh, but, but why is that? Well, you mentioned it's, it's hardware, software, and a cloud service. So really there are three pillars there. You have to get all of them right, and they had to work for the customer. One thing to remember is when we were starting Meraki in the 2000s, Computer networking had been an industry that was established in the 70s and 80s. So it was a very mature, very well-established industry. So I remember investors were pretty skeptical that, hey, can a startup really compete with a market giant like a Cisco Systems or Juniper or Huawei? Like there are these really big companies that are well-capitalized, you know, billions of dollars in market cap. Can a little tiny company with a few basically students and a couple million dollars really make a dent? And so it was kind of on us to go demonstrate that that could be done. The first year of Meraki, we basically uh, were self, self-funded. self We got to a million dollars in revenue roughly without raising venture capital. At that point, Sequoia Capital came knocking and, and they were our Series A investor. They said there's something here. And so that's when the, the true sort of venture-backed uh, journey began. Now, that's interesting that you guys decided to, to go at it with Sequoia because at that point, you already had the business validated. And to be honest, it was it was probably not an easy decision for you guys too because when you are already producing that level of revenue and having that growth it's also very hard to time where you fall as a financing cycle and you don't want to do it too late or skip financings or how did you go about doing that and bringing sequoia on board so that you made sure that this was timed from a financing cycle you know perfectly yeah you know uh, as much as we'd love to believe we had it all figured out, what we really had was the beginnings of something interesting. So we knew that we'd built a product that people wanted. It was useful to customers, but we hadn't yet really figured out the pricing model. Even the price point had, you know, there's a lot of work that went into really figuring out where this fit in the market. So with Sequoia, what we were really looking for was a partnership. We wanted to basically work with uh, an investor who wanted to build a business and build one for the long term. And that's what we found there. And it took us a couple of years. That enterprise model that I mentioned earlier, where we were, you know, pricing the cloud service, it took us a couple of years to get there. Um, and Sequoia was in the boardroom. We would kind of go through uh, sort of iterations and, and try things. Very disciplined in terms of making sure we hit our financial plans. But those challenges were always interesting because it forces you to get creative and figure out, okay, 
how are we going to make the number next year and the year after? So you're right. There are different points where you can finance a company. This happened to be a good one for us because we could get a significant amount of capital into the company, maintain a healthy amount of ownership, and then really set ourselves up to build a business as opposed to just find a way to make payroll, which is kind of where we were as a bootstrap company. Like a million dollars of revenue, it's significant, but it's not enough to, to really build a big business. So how much capital did you guys raise prior to the acquisition by Cisco? You know, it's been a couple of years, but I would guess around 40 million. So by today's standards, not a lot of money. And that was over a few rounds. So make us an insider. Make us an insider to the moment that Cisco knocks on the door and what happened. You know, what was that progression all the way to getting the deal done? Yeah. So um, this is kind of rewind the clock back to 2012. So a little over a decade ago. Uh, the business, and, and if you remember, the global financial crisis had just happened. Uh, this was kind of a really challenging time to be running a startup company because uh, funding really had kind of dried up. We had been through a lot just as a company and customers, right? Everyone had gotten very tight with their budgets and so on. So we had managed to double revenue, as I said, basically every single year or really every single year. The business Meraki was coming in at around a $100 million run rate, um, which is really exciting, big milestone. And back then, that was right around the time that you would take, typically take a company public. So we had good gross margin. We were roughly break even. We were growing very quickly. And uh, we were getting ready to you know, hire the bankers and start the S1 process. That's effectively when Cisco came knocking. They said, look, we have been competing with you guys. We uh, admire the product. We think it's really innovative. It's very different. And we think it might make sense to consider an option where it becomes part of Cisco as opposed to just being an independent private company or public company, because Cisco did have a lot of brand, they had reach uh, that we didn't have yet as a smaller company. They said, if you want to really have impact, this is something you should consider. And so that's what kind of opened the conversation. But uh, to be frank, we weren't looking to sell. We didn't have a banker. We didn't run a process where we said we're looking to try to sell this business. We plan to run it as a public company. So how did that uh, initial you know, outreach happen? Was it like a random LinkedIn message? Was it like via one of the investors or, or who connected you and, and Cisco? You know, I think it was an email uh, from someone in their corporate development team. And we had then, I think, uh, in, engaged this before uh, two years ago. We said, hey, look, we're just not, th this, this is not what we want to do uh, from a next steps for the company perspective. So we weren't strangers to them, but we also didn't have like an open channel of communication because they were actually our largest competitor at the time. So walk us through that day, you know, that day that you're sitting down and you're inking the deal, your first company, 1.2 billion exit. I mean, that's, that's pretty unbelievable, Sanjit. Eh? First company, first outcome, and especially of that level, it is really incredible. So what was going through your mind? Uh, a lot. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different factors you're weighing. In terms of the decision, you know, there's some of it which is numbers oriented. Like you said, 1.2 billion, it was a lot. Back then, uh, that revenue multiple was very generous. Basically, Cisco was giving us credit for years of basically perfect execution in the future because they knew this business had a lot of momentum. Um, I think the last venture round that we'd raised maybe six months before was priced around 400 million. So this is a 3X essentially, it's a big step up. So that part was at least, you know, clearer, right? That, hey, this is a really generous offer. The part that was less clear was whether it was the right thing to do for the business and for the team, because you're now going to be a part of a much bigger company. And that has a lot of implications in terms of how you operate, uh, 
who's attracted to the business, you know, how you get to customers. So that was actually where we spent most of our time debating was, is this the right thing to do for Meraki over the, the next several years? And where we kind of came out was we said, this is a really interesting idea that we could sell the product under the Cisco label or brand, uh, but preserve what's made it special. And that was really what, what made the deal happen. But Cisco came back to us and said, yes, that's exactly what we want to do. We're going to keep you separate. We're going to run you as a separate, basically, division or entity. And uh, so we maintained our offices in San Francisco. Meraki is still based there. Cisco Meraki is called now. It's gotten a lot bigger. It's a multi-billion dollar business, but it's not in San Jose with headquarters. It's, it's of course, part of the platform. Um, and they were true to their word there. So that's actually what made the deal happen. The numbers got, the, got our attention, but really the setup and the commitments they made were what made it happen. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So so in this case, the transaction happens, smashing outcome, uh, life-changing, you know, as well, especially financially, you know, for, for the team. Obviously, you know, at this point, you guys work on the integration. You do the vesting and resting for about a little bit over a year. But as the saying goes, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. At what point do you start brainstorming again with John and then thinking that uh, maybe it's time to go at it again? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the term is very much rest and vest, but I don't think we did a lot of resting because <laughs> we, we, we were really excited to now have access to this channel. So we got on planes, like we'd go see customers and the business actually grew even faster, if you can believe it. So, uh, wow. you know, I, I, I don't know how much I can say about the revenue numbers, but it was really a very fast, fast pace of growth. And for us, it was about seeing the commitment through. Like we felt it was it was on us to make sure this was a success to Cisco as an acquirer, but also to our team, because, you know, this is their livelihood. And I'm really proud of what we accomplished there. It, it was a tremendous amount of effort and work, not just to run Meraki's business, but to integrate it and figure out what you're going to integrate, what you're not going to integrate, or at least not yet. And so that was the next two years, roughly, of our lives. Um, the, the revenue, again, like I said, just continued to grow. And at some point, it was clear that our job was done in terms of 
bringing those two businesses together and setting them up for success. So we kind of started what we call the process of evaporation. We'd come to work one less uh, day per week in the last couple of months just to make sure the transition was going to be smooth. And by the end of it, uh, it, it went off without a hitch. So even though as founders, we were moving on, uh, the people running the business who had been with Meraki for some time, they were in charge, they were in control, and they were able to really grow it. So that's kind of what was going through our heads. Then we took a little bit of time off because we hadn't really taken a vacation. Uh, took a couple of weeks. My uh, older daughter was born around that time in, in November. So it's kind of a good time, just like a bookend, right? Like, hey, let's just call this a, a break and, uh, you know, kind of do nothing for a little bit of time. So then at what point do you realize, I think I'm getting bored? You know, it's saying <laughs> maybe I, I got to do something with my life. Yeah, you know, it didn't take long. So my co-founder, John, he 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 played a lot of video games. I went back to tinkering um, and all of our friends were still working. Most of them were still at Meraki. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's a weird thing to be in your early 30s and uh, still have a tremendous amount of energy. But then say like, hey, you know, uh, we're not ready to be retired. It, it's by the way, don't get me wrong. Vacations are awesome. But there's a true sense of purpose you have when you're building something and doing it with a great team. And we miss that. So. That's kind of what, what got us back into it. It is a big commitment, though, to start another company because, you know, the first time through, you kind of don't know what you're getting yourself into. Second time, you know that it's it's a big time commitment. It's also a lot of um, it's a lot of responsibility because responsibility to yourself and your family, but also everybody's on the team. So that was kind of a big decision for us. But uh, like you said, it's, it's hard to do nothing for a very long period of time. I would say about uh, maybe a couple of months. And we were ready to dive back in. And that was in the spring of uh, 2015 when we started Samsara. So why Samsara? Well, um, Samsara was actually started in a different way than Meraki. So Meraki was technology first. We had the Wi-Fi technology, the ideas from grad school. We wanted to, to go see that have impact in the world. Samsara was started customer or market first. We had come across the world of operations. Uh, basically, think all the infrastructure of our planet, the energy utilities, the construction companies, the local governments that run our planet. And uh, we'd been exposed to them as customers. And we discovered that this was a part of the market that was really underserved. Like They were running their business on pen and paper. This is 2015, not very long ago. And we were kind of wondering, why has no one brought them new technology? And for us, as kind of second-time entrepreneurs, we wanted to have an even bigger impact. Meraki set a very high bar. If you look around, by the way, you go to a Starbucks, you see Meraki up up there. You know, you go to an airport, there's Meraki everywhere, et cetera. So we knew that it was possible. It sets a really high bar, but we felt that there was an opportunity to really move the needle um, in, in these industries. And so that's kind of how we got started. Uh, but again, we didn't know the first thing about operations. None of us, neither of us had driven a, a commercial truck. We never worked in a factory or warehouse. And so the first year, we just kind of set out to learn and figure out what's the right product to build? How do we achieve product market fit? So then, so then in this case, you know, like you did it a little bit different. I mean, you raised VC a little bit earlier. But I think before we get into that, for the people that are listening, what is Samsara? You know, how are you guys making money? And then why did you go at it differently, you know, this time with capitalizing the business? Yeah. So uh, it's, I'm sorry, we're digitizing the world of physical operations. So I mentioned a bunch of different industries, but think about the infrastructure of our planet. This is 40% of the world's GDP, by the way. We're all touched by the supply chain, by the energy utilities and so on. What we do is we provide a complete system. So we have hardware um, similar to Meraki, but we have sensor devices and gateways. We have software that runs on all this hardware and we have a cloud service that, that brings the data together. 
And so really what Samsara does is it gets you information about what's going on in physical operations, where your trucks are, if you're being safe, uh, you know, workflow information and so on. We take all that data, which is a massive amount of data, and then we process it in the cloud and we train things like AI models to go find insights in that data. And then we help our customers take action uh, on that data. So we have workflows, we have apps, we have alerts, things like that. The net result is if you're a business in operations, you can really significantly improve your safety, for example. Uh, you can improve your efficiency, you can improve your sustainability because these are big carbon emissions businesses. So that's kind of the impact that we have. And to put it in perspective, a, a example customer of ours is DHL, you know, the yellow parcel delivery vans that you see all over. So they use us to improve their safety and their operations because they're on the roads all day long. They use us to improve their efficiency. Uh, because they're you know running routes, they're trying to figure out how can we do things faster, more efficiently with you know this big footprint, and they care a lot about sustainability. So they want to basically use less fuel, transition to EV. These are all data problems, so we help with things like that. So then, so then in this case, what what did you do differently? Because obviously on the last one, it sounds like it was more bootstrapped, you know, a little bit different the approach until Sequoia came in. You know, it sounds like capitalizing here the business, you know, was a little more proactive. Why, why did you guys go a little bit more proactive this time around? Yeah. So with this one, we were a bit more sophisticated in terms of knowing that we had access to capital. But again, you don't want to overcapitalize a business. You need to first find that product market fit. The first year, John and I, because we'd had a significant exit from Meraki, we were able to essentially be the seed investors for Samsara. So we just essentially loaned the company some money in a convertible note and just got to work. Like we said, let's go focus on customers. Once we found the beginnings of product market fit, we knew what that felt like because we'd been through it once before. And we said, now is the time to go, right? In order to go scale this business fast enough and really serve customers at scale, we should go inject more capital into it. And we ended up partnering this time with uh, Mark Andreessen at Andreessen Horowitz, who saw the potential for all of this sensor data, all of these uh, you know IoT products to go really make a, a difference, to have an impact. So that's kind of how we got off the ground with Samsara. We initially funded it um, out of our pockets, and then we went and partnered once we had that initial product market fit, um, or, or at least the beginnings of it. And then from there, you, we were able to kind of go through the stages very quickly because um, you know we, we had the pattern matching, right? So we'd seen multiple products of Meraki go from zero to 100 million. We knew what that felt like and what that looked like. And we didn't want to get slowed down by uh, access to capital. So so in this case, what, obviously, investors were probably throwing money at you. I mean, the last company, $1.2 billion exit, you're like what investors would typically consider a tier zero founder. Now, those <laughs> ones that, you know, that the money is going to the execution. Why did you choose, you know, when obviously you had all these investors that you had access to, I mean... What were you really looking for? I mean, were there like a certain, you know, maybe like a few checkboxes that you were like, this, they need to be a must? Yeah. So because of our experience in the first company with Sequoia, we knew the importance of a high quality uh, venture capital partner uh, as opposed to just money for money's sake. The, you know, lots of different ways to raise financing, especially in the mid uh, 2010s. There were a lot of VC firms out there. But the partner is who matters the most, who's in the boardroom, right? And these businesses, by the way, they take nearly a decade to really get going. Uh, Samsara is now an eight-year-old company. And so we think about it, we've had like 30 plus board meetings. Those matter, right? The, the, the sort of counseling that you get, the sort of diversity of thought, the perspective. And so we really focus not just on the money, like can we get access to the capital, but really who is coming with that and, and how do they think? 
And in our case, we wanted someone really strategic and we met a lot of different investors. We did have a lot of choice. And in this case, Mark actually just stood out as, hey, this is going to be a really interesting partnership uh, because he's a long-term oriented thinker. He's very strategic and sees the world a little bit differently. So we really like that. So, so in this case, I mean, for you guys, the level of scale, you know, was a little bit different, you know, that what you were used to with Meraki. You know, we're talking about over 2,000, you know, employees that you guys have and, and the level of growth is just unbelievable. I mean, what kind of perhaps... I would say, like, lessons did you take from Meraki that you knew you were absolutely going to apply as you were thinking about scale with Sapsara? Yeah, we learned a lot along the way with Meraki. So there were a couple of key lessons. The first was just the importance of running a customer feedback loop. So spending time with customers, really understanding the real-world challenges that they had, and then building technologies to solve that. I think many companies start with a great idea and kind of push the boulder uphill. We know that's possible, but it's actually a lot easier if you're following customers around saying, what else can we do for you? Uh, and, and they open up, they share. Once you solve one problem for them, they tell you about all the other problems that are part of their business. So that customer feedback loop, the customer centricity was very important. And then maybe the second one, which is very related, is the importance of the company's culture. And so both Meraki and Samsara, they've been very customer-centric businesses, right? Running this feedback loop, listening for feedback, truly becoming a technology partner, uh, first in networking and now with physical operations. That has served us really well. So those are probably the two lessons that uh, I would say carried over the, the most strong. Yeah, because, I mean, you guys, I mean, with Meraki, you were more like on the hundreds of millions now with, uh, or, or 100 million, you know, ARR now with, um, with, with this one, with Samsara, we're talking about crossing the 1 billion ARR, which is incredible, especially a company that you started from nothing, Sanjit. I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable. Like, I guess when you're thinking too about supporting that scale, we were talking about the, the, the investors, right? You were talking about Mark Andreessen. And I guess, I guess the question here that comes to mind is how much capital did you guys raise prior to going public? And why going public too versus perhaps, you know, like doing an acquisition like you did on the last company? Sure. So this business raised a considerable amount more capital because we were actually growing it faster. Um, and in this case, because we had that uh, understanding of product market fit, and many of the members of our leadership team had worked with us at Meraki, so we were able to just go really fast. Like We knew who we wanted to bring in uh, at which point in time. Uh, from an access to capital perspective, uh, we raised that Series A, like I said. But then very quickly, uh, we ended up doing an insider round for the Series B. In other words, Andreessen Horowitz proactively approached us and said, we'd like to finance the company some more so you can go even faster because it's working. Uh, General Catalyst, which is another venture capital firm, Hemant, uh, Taneja and I, we served on a board together, so he knew us, uh, and he was sort of aware of the, the traction of the business, so he got involved in the Series C. And so access to capital was just really not an issue for this business. To answer your question, I think we raised over $900 million of VC for this company. We didn't spend it all. A lot of it sat in the bank balance. And then when we went public, uh, we raised an additional several hundred million, I think 800 plus million, which again sits on our balance sheet. So. In this case, uh, this is a business that is much larger scale, like you said, than Meraki. We're also serving a different buyer, a different audience. So our customers are businesses that have been around 50, some cases 100 plus years. They're much more conservative and they want to make sure that they have a technology partner who's well capitalized and is, is rock solid. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to be public was to be able to show them that we have the balance sheet, we have the profitability, we have the, the margins, et cetera, uh, to really be around for the long term. 
Now, this time around, a little bit different because the first one private, this one is public. Also, you haven't had the best, you know, years, you know, to really uh, be at it, you know, in the public eye because the macro environment is absolutely crazy. But what you guys have done is absolutely insane. I mean, we're talking about a market cap of 18 billion. And in the last year, I mean, year to date, year to date that you see this bloodbath happening, you guys have increased by 182% the stock price. I mean, it's just like unbelievable. So, so Sajid, how is it to operate a public, uh, you know, company now like Samsara versus what you are, what you were used to before? And what do you think has allowed you guys to experience this type of explosive growth when we're seeing this crazy macro environment? Yeah, it's definitely, it has been a challenging environment to be public, but I think we've learned a lot along the way. So it forces you to really think hard about what are the sort of fundamental elements of the business that we need to focus on as a leadership team and as a company. And for us, we knew we were onto something in terms of the big addressable market. Like I talked about the industries, we're talking about 40% of the world's GDP. So there's no shortage of, of market opportunity if we can go and, and drive impact there. So we knew the target was, was in sight. We had a really good sort of core unit economic model, which is, you know, was clear when we took the company public. So we said, if we just stay focused on solving customers' problems and, and really just being efficient, right? So how do we grow, but grow efficiently? Uh, we should be able to get this company into a really good spot. And I think what's happened, you know, as a public company report earnings every quarter, what's happened now is the, the, the transparency being public. The, the operating margin leverage has been clear. The growth rate has been sustained. And now we're at scale, like you said. So, you know, over time, things tend to just kind of come out. Like you're able to see uh, the, the sheer scale of the market. You're able to see the fundamental value of our business. And I think investors have turned on to that over the last year. So, Sanjit. Imagine, I mean, obviously a lot of people that you've been able to onboard, amazing, you know, the level of and caliber of investors that you've also added and now being a public company. I think that vision is a big one. You know, vision is ultimately what drives everything. So if we're thinking about vision for Samsara and we're thinking about you going to sleep tonight, Sanjit, and let's say you're having the snooze of a lifetime and you wake up in a world where the vision of Samsara is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, well, for us, um, you know, again, we serve the world of physical operations. So our vision is that that this world will run on Samsara. Uh, we think that all of the sensor data, all of this, you know, data analytics and AI, and then being able to take action based on the data can be really world changing. So that's what I'm looking forward to over the next five years. And the way we make that impact happens through our customers, you know, through their operations, because they're the folks that have millions of frontline workers, right? They have millions of vehicles, millions of pieces of equipment. And so they're at scale. By partnering with them, we're able to go change the world. And so what's fun about this job, by the way, is seeing the real world impact. So I mentioned DHL and how they've been able to prevent accidents on the road. They're a very, very large fleet of vehicles, right? We have other customers, XPO Logistics. They're a very big logistics company. We serve some of the biggest, biggest in every industry at this point. And it's amazing because we get letters or emails from them uh, on a regular basis every couple of weeks about, hey, you helped save this driver's life or with this really crazy accident that we were able to avoid because of the technology. So that feels really good. And when we look at the numbers, um, we can do the math on it. We estimate in the last year alone, we've helped avoid about 200,000 uh, accidents. So when you ask about five years from now, I think we're going to be able to prevent millions of accidents. I think we're going to save billions of gallons of fuel, right, which is going to be good for our customers' bottom line, but also good for the environment. So that's the kind of impact that I'm looking forward to in the next five years. 
So now we're, we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past. But I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection, Sanjit. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to maybe 2006, where you and, and John and, and were thinking about you know, getting started with something and shifting gears and not being a professor, but going at it as an entrepreneur. And let's say you're able to be right there on campus, maybe on MIT, and you're able to stop that younger Sanjit and have a, 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 a sit down with that younger Sanjit. And you're able to give that younger Sanjit one piece of advice given what you know now before launching a business. What would that be and why? Well, that's a really interesting thought experiment. Um, you know, what I would probably tell my younger self is, is just, just do it, like fully commit to it and do it. Because what I didn't mention, when we started Meraki, uh, John and I actually took leave from our PhD programs. And uh, academic research, uh, it's, it, can be really, uh, it can be really challenging, but it's also, it also has its own culture. And that's what we knew. So it was a little bit intimidating to say, we're going to go try this entrepreneurship thing. And so what we did is we actually went on leave and we thought, hey, if this doesn't work out, we can come back in three months and just pick up right where we left off, finish our degrees and become professors. Uh, that, you know, was, is something that kind of led us to be a little risk averse. Like we were always like hedging, if you will. And look, the Meraki journey worked out incredibly well. And I think it was it was just an amazing experience, not just financially, but also from a, a real world impact perspective. We got to build some great products and we built an amazing team. If I could tell my younger self about that future, I think my younger self would have been, yes, let's go do it. That sounds amazing. But at the time, we didn't know. All, what we knew were, was all the uncertainty, all the challenges that they had. But we weren't kind of visualizing what could happen uh, just from a day-to-day -day perspective in terms of creating a, an environment that we love to work in ourselves. I love that. So for the people that are listening, that are super inspired, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, probably LinkedIn. Shoot me a message. Uh, just find me online, uh, Sanjit, on LinkedIn, uh, under Samsara. I would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, easy, you know, well, Sanjit, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. It was fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.